you might have seen this week. It was sort of all over social media, Facebook, Twitter, all over different newscasts from Dallas to New York about the Amber Geiger trial. 31-year-old Dallas police officer who mistakenly shot Botham Jean, a 26-year-old accountant in Dallas, mistakenly because Amber in her apartment complex after a 13-hour shift with the police department actually landed in the wrong level of her particular building, thinking it was her building and her apartment. And as she went towards that apartment, she saw the door ajar. Walked in and was concerned, thought there was a burglary that was taking place. And there, Botham Jean, actually in his own living room, was shot and killed by Amber Geiger. Her verdict this week came down. Probably many of you read about it. Ten years in prison. What was most shocking and probably what got the most press was actually not the, well, the, the trial itself and even the, the racially charged aspects of the trial. Because Botham Jean was an African-American and Amber Geiger was a white Caucasian North American. It was really Botham Jean's brother. He was on the witness stand giving testimony, speaking about his brother. And before he got down, before he finished, he wanted to say something very specific to Amber. These were his words. I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I think giving your life to Christ could be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. I love you as a person. And I don't wish anything bad would happen to you. At that moment, Brandt actually asked the judge if he could give Amber a hug. Got down from the witness stand, coursed his way across, and there they embraced right in the middle of the courtroom. Tears, as you might imagine, from both of them. And many... Across the world, even speaking and writing editorials, trying to reconcile. How does that happen? How does one just grant forgiveness in a situation like that? Yes, 10 years in prison, there are consequences for the actions that we make. But how does someone have, as it were, the grace available to them? To be able, in that moment, say, I forgive you. Sometimes when we hear the words forgiveness, we think of it as kind of a cheap way to get out of a difficult situation. <laughs> you know, there should be more that, that is expected. You know, more needs to be done, as it were, to right this, this wrong that has happened. But actually, forgiveness is about the costliest thing you could ever do. Especially the one who says in return, I forgive you. 
I'm not going to try to get the score even on this one. I'm not, as it were, going to make you pay. I'm going to absorb the pain myself. There's maybe nothing more costly than that. No wonder Christian writers from all over North America, they were publishing editorials about it, were highlighting the fact this is a testimony of the gospel. This is a picture, Brant Jean, this young man, displaying to the world the witness of what the power of the gospel can actually do. Probably in this room right now, there are some injustices. And there are some loose ends, so to speak, in relationships and in circumstances. Maybe there's bitterness. Maybe there's resentment. I don't know. You know. Where would you get the power for forgiveness? Hold that question in your heart as we look at the text of Scripture together. Genesis chapter 44, beginning in verse 1. Then he commanded, that is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house to fill the men's sacks, those are his brother's sacks, with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with the money for the grain. And he did, just as Joseph told him to do. As soon as the morning light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. And now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow these men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? It is not from this what my Lord drinks, speaking of the cup, and by this that he practices divination? You have, none, you have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to him exactly these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that was found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal the silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it, he shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants." He said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. And each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. And he searched, and beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to him, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me indeed can practice divination? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, no, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in his, whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in him whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. 
Then Judah went up and to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left with his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, then you shall not see my face again. When he went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore... Please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Then Joseph could not control himself. Before all of those that stood by him, he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, he has made me a father to Pharaoh, lord over his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen. You shall be near me, you and your children's children and your flocks, your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. 
And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all of his brothers and they wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Father in heaven, we believe that. That this word, which was just read, is going to stand forever. And we want to know the truthfulness of this forever standing word. Because we need it to stand in our hearts. We need it to be strong within us. It's truth and all of its rich realities. Laying us bare and building us up in the image of Christ. Come and hear this prayer and meet us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. It's amazing, isn't it? Joseph's brothers. At the end of, well, at the end of chapter 43, they were on cloud nine. (laughs) If you were here last week, you remember they had this amazing feast. Joseph had invited them in. Oh, he brought Benjamin back. Simeon, who had been held in custody, was now released. All of the brothers together feasting, even drinking a little bit too much, apparently according to the text. And now the next morning they're being sent out. They're headed back to the land of Canaan. Their their bags are popping full of grain. They're going to go see their father. They're going to live happily ever after. Not quite. At least not quite yet. (laughs) Because at just that moment, I mean, barely a mile out of the city, in their rearview mirror, you know, the donkeys always have rearview mirrors. And on their donkeys, with the rearview mirror, they see this cloud of dust appearing behind them. And it is the steward of Joseph, a dignitary of... Egypt, with no doubt some level of entourage, there to levy a charge, a grievous charge of thievery, of the taking of the goblet, the silver cup, of which Joseph, whom they didn't know was Joseph, the prime minister of Egypt, drank from. Some of you may be thinking to yourself, okay, he's serious about his cups here. Um, You know, it's just a cup. Well, no, it's not just a cup. The cup represented in many ways power and authority. It represented um, holding, as it were, the uh, place of um, prestige and position at the table, which was a place in the ancient Near East of hospitality. And in that place of hospitality was a position of authority around that table along with its accoutrements that revealed where one's actual position stood in the line of everyone else around the table. It stood for something really significant. For them to take a cup was to in some ways commit the crime of, well, of of crimes. To to turn in evil for what was so good as to do a reverse hospitality. They had been received so kindly by the prime minister. Now is this their thank you? To take from him the cup? But even more than that, as is noted several times in the text, probably 
perked your interest as we were reading it in verse 5 and then again later in verse 15. Is this not the cup of which the prime minister uses to practice divination? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> Do we, did we read that right? Let's look back at that. Practice, yes, practice divination. It said it twice. Now, are we to read that is to say, well, this also, in addition to it being the place that he drinks, the, the place of feast, the place of prestige and power where he sat at the table, um, is, is it also to say this was a, a religious device, a mechanism, a kind of ancient Near Eastern mysticism that's in view where he uh, concocted potions with water and oil and wine and other such things in order to uncover hidden future knowledge. That's what divination is, to look into the future as if to divine what it is that's going to happen. It sure in some ways seems to be the case, even out of Joseph's own lips, right? In verse 15, he says, do you not know that I'm the kind of man who would practice divination? If you can hear the undertone of that, um, I'm kind of a big deal with a lot of wisdom and power. Um, is it surprising to you that I knew that you took my cup? Don't you know that I practice divination, as it were? Don't you know that I know what's always going on? That's kind of the discussion. And in a very real sense, it, it makes them in a, uh, be concerned, worry. And this guy knows a lot more than we thought he knew. Now... I don't really believe in the midst of the text that Joseph here is practicing divination. I think it's part of the ruse. It's a part of the story. The placing of the cup in the bags and the placing of the money in the bags and the, and the practicing of divination is, is, is part to rise the awarenesses of these men that someone is doing all of this. We're, we're being framed in some way. To, to raise those questions, but I, I think there's probably even a little bit more than that if I can push on it. Not just merely a part of the ruse, though certainly that, but a way of actually saying, is not this cup going to in some ways act to bring out the divine? What is the hidden knowledge of this passage? I know what you did last summer. Joseph is in the position of authority. He knows their story. He's actually in the midst of the story, if we can put it this way, in the position of the all-knowing. He knows who they are. He knows the story. They don't know who he is. He's orchestrating all the events. <laughs> Placing money, placing cups, giving commands. They're doing his bidding. This cup will become the test to bring out the real hidden knowledge of the passage. The thing that really the divine, the real divine of this passage is after. Do you see, it's through this cup that the secrets of these brothers will be revealed. As soon as the steward, of course, charges them with this issue, they're very defensive. You saw that, right? We didn't do this. Are you kidding me? 
I mean, when we left Egypt last time, we found that money in the mouth of our sacks. And don't you remember when we come back this time, now with Benjamin, as you asked us to do, we gave to you that money and we said to you, we don't know how it ended up here. We want to do everything honestly. We want to be legit. And how we go through everything is not that the case. Haven't we been honest men? We've been so, I'm so confident. I'm so confident that we don't have the silver cup in our bags that I'm just going to go ahead and say, if you find it in our bags, let's just kill the man on the spot. Let's just get it done. And the rest of us will be your servants. Oh, oh, oh. Little did they know they were writing their own doom as they were saying it. You're reading it, you know, through the text. You're just going, oh, no, 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 no. Not that, not that, not that. But you're thinking... There is, it's an amazing sometimes, especially when we're in defensive posture, how confident we get of our innocence. They're very confident of their innocence. Isn't it fascinating that men who actually will be revealed guilty of a much worse offense are so defensive of their smaller non-offense in the midst of that. Aren't we like that? We, We are so like that. We are so hard oftentimes too, right, on people who have done a sin, a thing that we could never do. And then we are so, um, so bypassing of our own much larger issues. And it doesn't nearly grieve us very much. It's fascinating in the midst of this is, of course, you know they're going to open up all these bags and then boom. Of course, whose bag is it in? Well, it's going to be in Benjamin's bag. Why? Because Joseph is doing all of this. And he knows. He's in the position, as it were, as an instrument of God. He's in an all-knowing position. God is actually using him in that way. The Lord has opened his eyes to see the things that they can't see. The Lord is using him, as it were, in the position of that. And he's using him to divine, to bring about the end that God has divined and decreed. He's using him in exactly that way, in and through this little cup. When they get back to Joseph's house, he's still there, and you expect them to launch into a a long diatribe of defense, but you know they don't do it. I mean, they've come to the point. You get this now. They've arrived. They've been accused of spies. They've been sent back. Simeon's been held custody. They've got to bring Benjamin. They brought Benjamin. Now they've got all their stuff. They're going back, and all of this has been a ruse. All of this has been a test. All of it's been a challenge that they've been walking in, and now they're on their way back finally with everybody in tow, and everything is great. They're going to live happily ever after, and there is a silver cup in Benjamin's back. And we've got to turn around and go back to cursed Egypt and see Joseph again. And he's going to go, what have you done? And you're just going to go, I have no words. I have no, I have no words. That's literally what they say. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? Am I going to say, I didn't do it. How, you know, here is judge and jury before me. The prime minister, he's going to make the decision and he's going to give the consequence. And I'm, all, all I can say is I didn't do it. And the evidence points us in a very different direction. What am I going to say? And so what does he say? He says exactly what he should say. Judah says exactly what he should say. Verse 17. God, father, a son that has not been true. We even read about it in the text, isn't it? When Jacob was going to send Benjamin, he goes, and I lost my other son who has definitely been torn to pieces. And you know, every time that he says that, they've got to go, oh man, oh man. 20 years we've been holding on to this. And he still thinks he's torn to pieces. 
And so Judah says, listen, <laughs> let me talk to you. It, it'll be enough. It'll be, it'll, it'll be enough if, um, if we just are all your servants, okay? We'll just all stay. We'll just all be, we don't, I can't go back with the Father. We're just all going to stay, and we're just all going to be your servants. No, 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 no. No, 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 says Joseph. Only the one that's guilty should receive punishment. You didn't do anything wrong. I'm just going to hold Benjamin for the rest of his life here in Egypt. And I'm going to send you all back home. And notice the word, to live in shalom. Oh, isn't that irony? There's an irony. We're going to go back home and your consciences are going to be totally at peace. Or not. That's the, that's the rise of the passage. I'm going to go back home so you can be at peace. And he's thinking to himself, there's no way I could be at peace. There's no way I could go home and be at peace. If I don't go home with Benjamin, do you know what's going to happen? And he, he, so he pulls him aside, doesn't he? And the large length of the passage, he rehearses. Hey, we've been really faithful. We've done like everything that you've told us to do. I, I, I wish I could explain what's going on right here. I don't think it's like you think it is, but I don't know what to say to make you think anything differently. So if we could just work out something to where Benjamin can go back, I tell you what, I pledged my word to my father that Benjamin, his his only son of the wife that he has always loved, and he's lost his other son, I pledged that I would bring him back unharmed. If, if you will just keep me, can we just send him back with all of his brothers? That's, that's his solution. Now, if you, if you can see the makings of what's going on in the midst of this passage, this is, okay, let me remind you. This is Judah who concocted the plan to sell Joseph 20 plus years ago. This is the Judah who, you know, thought he was sleeping with a prostitute in a previous passage that wind up being his daughter-in-law. This is this Judah. This Judah who has only ever thought of himself, who has systematically tried to destroy his brother Joseph out of jealousy who in no way has ever appeared in the text to have a thought about his father's sorrow, now says, I will give the entirety of myself if it means that Benjamin can survive and go back home. It, you know what this text is teaching us. It's teaching us about Substitution. It's teaching us about a man who didn't commit a crime, in this case, <laughs> Judah, to stand in for the one who is considered guilty of the crime in order that the one who is guilty of the crime can go free. Do you notice any, anything? Do you notice that's your story in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's exactly what he's done for you. It is that he has come... And he has stood in for you. He has received the wrath of the Father and all of the judgment for sin so that you can go back home to be with your Father. That's what, that's what he's done for you. That's the whole of what he's done. This, do you understand why Joseph started to lose control? That's, that's literally the language of the opening of chapter 45. Joseph loses control. He totally loses We've been seeing him cry for several chapters now. 
And when he does, he usually escapes to another room so nobody can see it. But here, what does he do? He banishes everybody within the room and he just literally loses it in front of his brothers. Why, why, does, he, why does he lose it? Because what needed to be divined was divined. What did he see? He saw what was the question of this text. Will these brothers who I know be willing to sacrifice a brother for their own ability and, and, uh, and willingness to be able to leave and live in peace, which is what they did with me? Will they leave Benjamin here and say, you know what, it could be worse. We could all be slaves. Let's cut our losses and go home. Or will we see something different? Have they changed? In the moment that Judah, none other than Judah, the worst among the brothers, says, I'll stand in for him. Joseph knows. I can tell you who I am. Now is the time. What needed to be divined has been divined. It's seen. I know where they are. I know their hearts. These men have changed. And of course, in that moment with tears streaming down his eyes, Joseph says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And they're like, <laughs> you know? And, and then it says, they're dismayed. You might have thought in that moment that they would just sort of like, you know, run and tackle him or something with a hug. But, you know, he hadn't said anything about forgiveness at this point. And he's kind of a big deal in Egypt. So, like, you know all that we did and you have all of the power to do anything you want to with us. And you've just revealed yourself to us. Uh-huh, the hammer's coming down. Dismayed. Dismayed. And, and Joseph sees it, doesn't he? Joseph sees it. And so what does he say? Verse 4 of chapter 45. Come near to me, please. Come near to me, please. And they came near to him and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And then listen to the text. And now do not be distressed. Or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That's an amazing moment. That's an utterly amazing moment. Here are these brothers who have lived for two decades plus under the guilt of their sin. And the worst nightmare in the world would be that they meet the brother whom that they have attacked and done wrong, and he has all the power in the then known world to destroy them. That's the worst possible thing. That almost sounds like the last judgment. It must have felt something like that for these men as they're standing before, before Joseph. And then he says, Come near to me, don't be distressed. Don't be angry at yourselves. Because what you meant for evil, 
God meant it for good. When you were trying to destroy me, God was about making me. In fact, it's even deeper and more beautiful than that. While you're starving to death in Canaan, which you had tried to kill me, God has been actually giving me all of the wealth of the world in order to give you life when you're on the fringes of death. That's what he's done. And I want you guys to know I don't hold that against you. Don't be angry or distressed. Welcome to Egypt. I love you. That's what he's doing here in this passage. Welcome to Egypt. I love Goshen. Most beautiful spots outside of Egypt. I, I, I've got it for you. For your children's children can be with me. For I am here. I have been set in a place such as this for this time. So to preserve, notice the language, a remnant of you. You know what that language comes from? Originally it comes from Noah. The language of Noah being a remnant, a redeeming remnant that comes out of the disaster of the flood. They are becoming, through Joseph, a remnant through the disaster of the famine. And Joseph is saying, listen, I see the evil that you did. I see what has taken place. I know how angry and at times, boy, have I been. But the Lord has given me eyes to see. And as I look over this suffering, you know what I see now? I only see a mission of God getting accomplished. What a remarkable passage. What a remarkable passage. Is that these men, standing before this brother, (laughs) dismayed, are now being forgiven, being welcomed in, to be changed. There's so many ways, right, that we see the beauty of the gospel here, isn't it? Some of which we've already explored. But I, I just couldn't, couldn't help but realize what's happening in Genesis 45 is that the one who had every right to judge them became the one who was utterly committed to saving them. That's what's happening in this passage. The one who had all the right to judge them, all the power, he had all the knowledge of what was needed to judge them, and he didn't judge them. He actually saved them. Now, until you know that that is not just Joseph's story, but yours, if you're in Christ, you'll never know the power of forgiveness. You'll never understand why, why, why Brent Jean can sit on that witness stand and forgive someone who murdered his brother. You never understand the nature of that. You, you never even begin to imagine that until you know that we murdered Jesus Christ with our sin. And he stands in the dock of the witness stand today in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And he lives to protect you, to save you, and to bring you to glory with him. Until you know that, you will never know the power of forgiveness. You'll never know the richness 
of what it means to live in that kind of grace where your judge, the one who has every right to destroy you, is the one who becomes so lovingly committed that all he does is save you. Friends, I think this passage wants that for you and me. Wants that hard for you and me. He wants to see there be a bridge between those resentments and bitternesses that we hold very tightly to. For the slowness that we go about in actually offering to God and to one another. The, the reconciliation, the joy that is to be ours in Christ. The slowness that we go about in releasing our, our bitternesses and resentments and our conflicts. There was several, and I understand them, and I'm sympathetic to them. Kent, this is a rich and abiding and a, and, and, and a plumbing of depths truth that when, you, when deep things have been done to you and you're deeply hurt, it takes us a long time sometimes, right? It takes us a while. We've got to get back to these truths over and over and over again. Lord, keep these before me. But how many to read some of those editorials in response to Brant Jean's forgiveness of Amber and just saying... I don't forgive her. I wouldn't forgive her. And listen, I hear that, and I'll be honest. I go, I totally get that. I totally get that. How often I feel that way? Because forgiveness in that moment feels so, really? That's all? That's what it feels like, right? All that you've done to me, that's all? All I got to do, forgiveness, like that's it. Until I realized all I had done to him. Until I realized all my sin. And I realized all of what I deserved. And he didn't require me to pay it back incrementally through good works or performance or atonements. And he knew that there was no way that I could. And then he looked at me and he loved me on the cross. And he rose again for the life that I would have. And I realize every day, every time I choose against him and against his will, I'm doing it again. And every day he forgives me again. How can I then say to my brother or my sister or anyone else, I won't forgive you? How can I, how can I do it? I don't, I don't know. There are times I want to not. Lord, be patient with me. Have mercy on me. Maybe some of you are in that spot this morning. You're like, I'm not there. I'm not there. I've not been there. There'll probably be another time where I'm not there. But God, get me there. God, get me there. Call on the Lord to get you there. And to be a gracious and a begetting grace community where reconciliation is not the exception to the rule, but it is the rule. Because we are a people who have been reconciled been reconciled to God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, if you're in Christ together today, listen, let me tell you. Your judge has become your savior. You have nothing to fear. All of Christ's record is at your disposal. He is welcoming you way in a way better confines than Goshen and Egypt. And he has gone to prepare a place for you where you've never run out of grain. And all of the children's children to all of the generations will be there in glory with you. One thing's for sure, reconciliation is going to happen one way or another. 
in the midst of the call of reconciliation in this passage. Let's walk in the mission of it until all is made right. For he has come to make all things new and to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth. Father in heaven, we would ask that you would press this truth into us right now. And Father, I I just am not wise enough to know how to communicate it that would meet the variety of circumstances in here. And so I just commend that to your spirit. I, I sense a great need for your spirit to do what only he can do. Uh, Father, you know the stories. You, you know what, the, how this is hitting uh, a variety of different people in this room and even how it's hitting my own soul. I trust you and your wisdom to be able to communicate spiritually in exactly the way that's needed. And so, Father, I just call upon you through the power of the Holy Spirit to send him to accomplish it. And Lord, those places where we need to mine the riches of this truth at a deeper level and apply it to our own lives personally, help us not to walk in fear. But as we learned earlier in the service, when we have received this perfect love, it casts out such fear. Let that love come. And let the testimony be that today in the presence of Christ, we've been perfected by that love a little bit more. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.